0: hello and welcome
1: to the stoked on spokes podcast the stoked on Spokes podcast the stoked
0: on spokes podcast the stoked on spokes podcast. podcast wait like sos well it's about fight right gear, races community and so much more
1: This is the Stoked On Spokes Podcast. Let's get rolling. Hello and welcome to the 41st episode of the Stoked On Spokes Podcast. Today I'm joined by Mr. Todd Paquette, Michael Godfrey. Gentlemen, how are you doing today? fine. Fantastic. Could you please introduce yourself and give me your bicycle background for people who don't know who you are? Mike, you can go first.
0: I'm Mike, bike background, so... A little more detailed than the last time. Started off as a kid riding bike around, get to and from town, which is like five miles away. Did all, did that all up high school. Then took a long break because college. And then first two years of work. I ended up into northwest part of Ohio, where I got really bored and decided to find something new, which ended up being mountain bikes. From there, I kind of went out and branched out to discover new locations. Somehow I ended up at a race on a race day or ended up at a trail on race day got parked in decided to waste 20 bucks and see how far i can crash myself so that kind of was a steamrolling of effect of where i got to today being able to race bikes around the nation now so cool cool how many years have you been riding Mike? this is 14
2: did you ride bikes when you were a kid
0: Yeah, so I rode from, oh yeah, from whatever train wheels were put on, which is like four or five till about 18. And granted, getting getting a a driver's license did hamper a little bit, but considering sports in high school and living in the country and not wanting to wake mom up on summer morning because her only time to be able to sleep in. So
2: So it was bicycling like your sport of choice growing up
0: it was the mode of transportation of choice uh hmm. up until driving other than that it was i mean sports so i was uh, some ball sports and then track and field
2: so no no organized cycling teams Nothing. or bmx no. so out. okay
0: i didn't know about anything as far as cycling related outside of what was on abc for either tour de trump or tour de france or something i was being televised at that moment of time in the 80s and 90s. Uh, So seeing organized cycling events or organized groups wasn't until my late 20s.
2: And how old are you now? 42. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I guess I'll throw in, I'll throw my hat in on uh, cycling or bicycle background. Growing growing up, you know, I had a bike like probably a lot of kids did, probably underappreciated with the The potential it had, didn't take care of it, you know, rode a bike basically, like you said, Mike, it was transportation, you know, get over to the friend's house, go from point A to point B, go get a pack of cigarettes or something, (laughs) smoking when I was young. But no competitive background, we didn't, cycling was not a thing in our community, I really can't even think it was much of a thing up here, that I at least that I was aware of at all bmx a little bit but once i got out of my teens and was able to drive the bike was left behind until i got into my mid-30s and then it was in my mid-30s that i had a i had my second back surgery 30 days after the second back surgery i had to have a third back surgery so i was down for like three months solid and actually the way that i came back from those back to back back surgeries was riding a bike of all things. Like a friend of mine, Todd Johnson, as I was getting released from my restrictions after the second surgery, he's like, cause I, I still couldn't lift. That was probably the thing I did the most was weightlifting and strength training, but I could not do that. And he said, well, why don't we take a ride? You can use my kid's bike. So I used Luke uh, Johnson's bike. It was two sizes too small for me. 10 miles around the city bike path, went home, got up the next day and felt like I got hit by a truck. <laughs> <laughs> because you know, cause you don't use the muscles, right? From there, it has escalated quickly because that was really just 10 years ago. So, so that, that's my bicycle background.
0: So you've always been up in the uh, UP?
2: Well, I was born up here. So I was born in Iron Mountain, 74. And then we we stayed in town. The family stayed there maybe my first couple of years. We moved to Gladstone, our south, I guess, or east. Went to school in Gladstone, graduated Gladstone. And then, really, from the time I left high school until we moved back up here in '09, I think, I was on the move all the time. You know, lower Michigan, back to upper Michigan, over to the Twin Cities, back to Michigan, into Wisconsin, back to Michigan. I was basically moving and following jobs, professional, you know, just career stuff.
1: So
0: how did you
2: guys first meet? Well, go ahead, Mike. You can tell that story.
0: Facebook would be the beginning of it. I had a couple of friends that went up north to do, they didn't know about the, the hammer. I didn't know about the hammer until last year, but they went up and did uh, Marjorie Gessick. Uh, and then Joe Lawhorn followed tail not too long after that and did the crush of the one year. And somehow Todd became one of the people I just started following along just, just as someone is a race director. He's trying to get to know people and see what they're doing, see what kind of information that they can provide and then random trolling of each other until two years ago when we actually finally met the crusher and that kind of was it was a little bit of a surreal moment because then all of a sudden it's like you start putting face to the name and also you start realizing the personality is not what you see online kind of developed a little bit more from there so i mean we still kind of troll each other but it's more of talking really put you back in place without really yelling at you to put you back in place type <laughs> I mean that's the type of friendship that we have so all of a sudden now, nowhere I was like yeah you go go ride your bike on an adventure and come back and talk to me okay
2: <laughs> so you're talking about 2020 right that's mm-hmm. the pressure you're referring to yeah
0: yeah yeah I
2: that that's probably my my first real solid recollection. I mean, I know we had been connected prior to that, but the thing that stands out the most to me, you'll probably remember this because we've talked about it since then, is something you'd ask something along the lines of, you know, if I'm basically eyeing people up. Because everybody oh, coming yeah. to, remember, everybody's coming to my house that year because it was the pandemic and every event, you know, known to man across the world was shut down. And we decided that the crusher Was in a position to adapt and provide an outlet for people just because of the way it had been structured from the beginning as a self supported event. So it was basically like, hey guys, (laughs) this year it's for real. You actually are on your own. So, you know, good luck. So everybody had to come to my house to get the beacons. And I think also that year you were picking up the passports, which you needed. You had to have the passport to be able to do the event. I just remember that conversation uh, that we had about. I think your assumption was that I would sort of make predictions on whether or not people would fail or succeed. Is that correct? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it was, it was based off of a conversation in passing with another race director where all of a sudden certain people started getting benefits in, in certain ways, or, or, uh, it was just like all of a sudden people started getting treated a little bit differently if they were going to, you know, be the preem or, or whatnot. And all of a sudden I was like, like. Oh, so when you, because I don't know, how many people do you end up seeing? Is it about a thousand people? A thousand, thousand, thousand people, yeah, that year. So you you got a chance to see everyone and every single bike and every single setup. And then it was like going, so you see, you know, you see someone like Alan show up on his rig. you think he would be able to finish? And you just kind of looked at him and goes like, I have no idea. <laughs> they're going to show up. They're going to go. He's going, it's up to them. It's like if they yeah. want to finish and if they're determined to finish, they're going to finish. Yeah,
2: I'll never forget that because I do think a lot of times the assumption is that we're all making assumptions about people or predictions. And my take, like I think I shared it with you that day, is you know it's not my place to sit and to spend any time determining whether or not they're going to succeed or fail. Um, I think that my role in in our events, my role in our youth programs, and just my role in general is a is a fellow human is actually to make sure I'm constantly doing what I can to set people up for success. And then whether or not they experience it is on them. It's not on me. So that that's my take on it. But I remember when we met very well.
0: <laughs> yeah. Just so you know, that that interaction, that particular interaction actually changed me a little bit uh, for the better. Let's put it that way. So it, it, people haven't noticed there, there's been some changes and yeah, it's things like that. Oh, there was
2: one other interaction, actually. Now, our second interaction, it was that same year. You were out doing the run. Oh, You were God. out doing the run, right? I think it was the last event for you to yeah. get, the, get the fist. So, Alan, he, to get the fist, you've got to do the 225 EX. You have to do the 100 EX. Those are both bike rides. You have to do the 40 EX. And then you have to do a 50-mile not fun run. So he went out. I don't. It was in September, like the 24th or 25th or something that fall. He was out doing the run, and I was actually out doing the 225 for the last time that summer slash fall because I went, I I hadn't been able to do it alone that year, so that was my last chance to to get to do it alone, and uh, I passed him around, I don't know mile 25 or something, <laughs> and I just remember riding by thinking. I am so happy that I'm riding 225 miles and not running 50. (laughs) That looks stupid. (laughs) I
0: remember you passed me and you were just laughing.
2: (laughs) I was inside and out. (laughs)
0: Because it's nothing like seeing a guy who used to run a long time ago, then all of a sudden start doing endurance cycling and not run, all of a sudden go out and decide to do a 50 mile run with the longest run he's ever done up to that point was a 10 K.
2: Yeah. It, it, honestly, it's super impressive to me that that summer and fall, there were 25 people. I think we handed out 25 fists that year, which means there's 25 people to do the not fun run. And I want to say God darn 23 or 24 of them were all bikers. Who had to transition and do a, a run like that? That's impressive. I mean, yeah. these are people that, frankly, they have no business running. I mean, they're making runners look bad. <laughs> <laughs> but they did it. Freaking awesome.
1: So, how has this uh, friendship grown then? It's your typical long-distance relationship.
2: We long for each other, and then we spend a little bit of time together, and then we long for each other some more.
0: Yeah, pretty much. <laughs>
2: That's the gist of it. We're always left wanting more.
0: Always, there there's always some kind of random lovey-dovey message that gets passed. <laughs> I can think of a couple in the last few days, just just poking bear types of things, and yeah, it's and all good cult. stuff, you know. Everybody should do that. You should you should always be doing little
2: things, and we're all guilty of not doing it. But you should always be checking in on people. I think really the last two years, as we came through the pandemic and stuff. That really, that's something I think that just became more important to me is to whether the person lives here or lives afar, you know, or, or how far away it is to check in on people because we have a fairly large network now and community that has grown well beyond Marquette County and the upper peninsula of Michigan. I know, I mean, I know probably a hundred times more people outside the UP than I do in the UP and I've lived here my whole life. It's interesting how the last couple of years you'll notice from time to time somebody who's in the community who's been active within the social platforms, they disappear. And all of a sudden, you know, one day it, it'll pop in my head like, oh man, I wonder where the hell Pete went. You know, I wonder what he's up to, or or I wonder where the, I wonder where the hell Kevin went. So it's it's interesting to reach out to those guys, check in on them, because sometimes what you find out is, you know. In Pete's case, he was he was going through a hip surgery. So things changed for him pretty dramatically, but it's nice to check in on people because oftentimes if they disappear it's for a reason
0: and they need somebody checking in on them. Todd's saying I need checked in on.
1: Yes. <laughs> the main reason this episode is happening, we've already had Michael on. We, you know, he's great and all, but I've heard from so many people, you've got to have this Todd Paquette guy on. I didn't formally meet you until now, Todd, but I've heard so much about 906 Adventure Team. I've heard so many people talk so highly of it and what you've been doing. Talk about 906 Adventure Team. How did it start? What is it for people who don't know? Boy,
2: that that would... How long do you have? <laughs> I'm going to give you the... I'll try to give you the cliff note version. We've... we've So 906 Adventure Team is, in, is a 501c3 nonprofit. We are coming up on our... 10th year um, at the end of this year. And I mean, when it started, it's, you know, the adventure team started doing a transition period in my life where I decided to leave, you know, a corporate job. I had had my career with Cisco Foods, you know, largest food distributor in the world. It had been a great career, great run. I have learned a lot, but ultimately decided that I needed to pursue different things and that that just the corporate environment wasn't for me. I went to work at a local restaurant chain here in Marquette. It really just it was a time for me where I said, "Hey, I'm going to work 80 hours a week. It really doesn't matter what I do or where I do it. I'm always that's just how I'm wired. I like to constantly be on the move, doing, pushing the ball forward." So the nonprofit was sort of a passion project. It was like, oh, "All right, you know, now all of my time is being dedicated to my community and the place that I live here, Market County. I'm going to work for a business in Market County and help, hopefully, help them get better. And I can also help the community by venturing in and trying to help start a nonprofit that could focus on what I felt was a gap in our community, and that gap being that there, the cycling scene here is not. It was not then what it is now it's actually shocking how quickly we've gone on the national and world map because it's changed it's like somebody hit the light switch and everything turned on at that time it was different much less on the map much less on the radar and the only teams i was aware of or cycling influences that i was aware of in the community were more i'd say semi-pro race teams and you know the people on those teams were all young men or middle-aged men there were no opportunities for kids there were no opportunities for average men and women there just wasn't i didn't feel there was a organization that was doing a good job of pulling people together and creating a stronger continuity in the community that's what we set off to do and that was in 2014.
0: so i can say from being because i grew up well being in ohio we used to go up to the up all the time so seeing just the development on multiple scales in that area, because we used to go to Curtis, then kind of go up to Whitefish and then go over to, you know, Munising and, and see some things. But the the development has changed dramatically from, from the 90s till, till now. And then even from your point, just like just. Initial rumblings from from the mountain bike side, just hearing about Copper Copper Harbor and then Marquette, you know, it's like, oh, there's some stuff up there. And then also, finally, you get people uh, from down here going, no, that's not just a little bit of stuff up there. There's there's world class stuff up there to to what we're seeing now. I mean, shoot, I have four friends that just did it, just came back from a vacation up there. Yeah. And you go anywhere go anywhere in the U.S. and they decided to go to, to Marquette and Iron Mountain.
2: Yeah, no. I guess to round out your your question, Alan, that was I gave you the front end, kind of the how or or the why. You know, where did it where did this idea come from? I will tell you that when I when I first started down this path, you know, remember I told you I started on a friend's kid's bike that was too small for me, and then things escalated quickly. Well, as things escalated quickly for me personally, I I went right into the race scene. So, I went from not having not been on a bike for 25 years to being on a bike every day. Now we're going to, you know, races around the Midwest. We're going to Traverse City for the Iceman, the X100. I don't know, some other races down there. We're doing all the local races. We're going down to Cable, Wisconsin for the uh, Check 40 and the Check 100. And it's just like full on, full all in on racing. And when we started the youth program, that was our initial conduit to connect with kids and families. It was racing, because it's like, all right, let's let's create this athletic opportunity for kids who aren't ball sport kids. And we started going down that path around 20, 2014. And we spent a couple of years on that track here locally. You know, we were basically training the kids to go do all the races we were doing as adults. So again, or to shore here. Uh, Iceman down in Traverse, Check Forty over in Wisconsin. And we did that for a couple of years, and we grew from you know we started as me and five kids. That was the, our first ride as an organization was me and five kids. Didn't nobody had a clue what the hell we were doing. Uh, but we were you know we knew we were going to try to do something. So across those two years, it it probably grew to oh I don't know. It's all local, probably 30, 30 adults and fifteen kids. So 45 you know, people total. And then, of course, you've got the inclusion of the families or what we would call the events support crews because your family is your support crew. So, yeah, we're probably talking 100, 150 people, maybe tops. The big shift was in the fall of 2016 when we, we were still in that race mode. We were accepted by the Wisconsin High School Cycling League. That's a NICA league over in uh, Wisconsin, we were accepted to compete in that league against all the other Wisconsin teams. So in the fall of 16, we fielded a, the, the first NICA team uh, from Michigan and we raced, we practiced all fall twice a week. And then we raced all fall in Wisconsin, I think a total of five races. That's where the shift occurred. And, and this is the an inflection point where going into 17, everything changed and we had no idea what we were what we what was waiting us awaiting us down the road. So coming out of that experience in uh, Wisconsin racing, it's like okay, we've been doing this now a couple of years and this NICA experience showed me more than any experience I'd ever had that out of all the kids that were there ra- race or riding with us on the team that fall, out of the 34, 8 or 9 wanted to race. 8 or 9 were there to race everybody else was there to ride bikes and be with kids their age, you know, have fun in the woods, have an experience. And the struggle was that when you when you mix kids, eight or nine kids who are there for performance, and they want to go to every event, ready to perform, and they're vying for the podium, and you mix them with kids who really couldn't care less, and aren't going to go to the races. Now you have a situation where nobody's getting what they want. And frankly, nobody's getting the experience they deserve. Because if if I'm being honest, you know, as, as an adult, as a coach or as a mentor, the eight, nine, 10 kids that want to race, they deserve to be coached so that they can go to every race prepared to compete at their highest level. And then those other 20 or 25 or whatever the number is, Kids that don't want to do that and will not go to a race, they also deserve the experience they're looking for. Every ride should not feel like a death march. I mean, and this is coming from the guy that preaches, do hard things. I'm telling you, you can't do hard things 24 hours a day, especially for kids, because you know what they'll do? They'll hang up their bike and they're going to walk away from it. And that's the end of them on a bike. And that's the ultimate worst case scenario. So The big change going into 17 from the youth programming side was we created Adventure Bike Club, which was separate from the NICA team, and it was 100% adventure-based for kids five to 17. The only competitive piece to that program is you versus you. You get better than you were last week, and then everybody in your group, you know, is your team, and you're working together, and everybody's working to get better together. We kept racing with the race team and. It's been like a rocket ship since then because that was also the year that was huge that was a huge move for us uh, because i've I've used this number for adults and kids for ten years eighty five percent of people that go to these events are not there to compete and win. They're there for a PR they are there because they're sick of their life and they need to they they need to change something and Training for this event and improving, they can do it is what they need to maybe change their luck. That's eighty-five percent of people are looking for an experience. They're they're not there for the the winning and the racing. Fifteen percent are, so the adventure and the same is true for kids. It might even be it might even be ninety percent of kids don't give a crap about racing. That is just naturally more inclusive and uh, more flexible to meet people's needs. And Then the other piece that changed for us from the event side that helped. us into orbit was we chose to join the NUE National Ultra Endurance Series and they came here in the fall in 2017. We had a banner race. We had the worst weather ever. It was in the mid 90s or, or 100 degrees that day, which was perfect because it crushed everybody. The DNF rate was 70%. You know, Jeremiah Bishop's here. He goes on Facebook Live, calls the event, the hardest single day mountain bike race in America. And we're we're off and running and we haven't slowed down since. And it's all because of all those separate but connected things happening in the same year.
0: So with your observation of the majority of the kids not wanting to race, how much of the, the pushing for racing was not so much the, from the kid's side, but from the parent's side? Oh, it's a hundred percent. I don't know why this is, but we, for some reason,
2: culturally believe that the vehicle for effective youth development is head-to-head competition. That model's broken. And, And I mean, I actually think we're proving, I think we're proving it organizationally. It's just that, you know, we're still, we're still under the radar a little bit, I would say. I mean, we're on the radar here in the UP and for the people who know who we are, there's a lot about what we're doing that is applicable anywhere in the world. And we'll do more, we'll do more good things for a much broader range of kids and people than racing does because racing, if you think about it or any competitive endeavor, any competitive endeavor or racing or competition is naturally divisive. It is inherently divisive. I've used this example in the past, high school sports, like you said, you played ball sports. I played ball sports also. I was a Gladstone, Brave football, basketball, baseball. And I've, and I've shared this story before, like in, in reflection now as a 48 year old father of, you know, two boys, I I look back and I'm like, okay, I was a brave and I hated anybody from Escanaba. You were from Escanaba. If you were Escanaba Eskimo, we were, we were just biologically, you know, opposed to one another. Why was that? Well, it was only because of the affiliation between the teams, you know, that, that local, because the two communities, they touch each other. So it's like, like Escanaba is the big class A school, Gladstone's class, I don't know, B or C, we're rivals. So somebody's always losing. There's always casualties to competition. Somebody's always, you know, there's always somebody not getting what they want. So it's just naturally destructive.
0: Well, I can I can take a step further on that. Just from looking at it from the competitive side, is like outside of opposing teams, you get in, individual inside the team, and you're you're competing for individual position or individual oh, yeah. placement. So, okay. so I remember there was times, and I'm not afraid to admit this at this point in time, but there's times I I self destruct people trying to trying to either take my position or me trying to take theirs, or, or again, it's just you just see that self destruction within the team. Within the setting, it just while there's team building occurring, but there's also destructive in the individual roles. So that's why I kind of asked the, the that point for for the you know being pushed from the parent side and seeing how how everything's being affected from there and just seeing how the change of structure is actually applicable now.
2: Uh, I'll share some numbers with you. I don't know that I've ever shared these you know on a podcast. This is this is real data. We are working this year in nine communities. Now, by nine communities, I mean, we've got seven that are 906 Adventure Team youth program communities that we're responsible for. And then Lansing is what we are calling an affiliate. They are leveraging and utilizing the resources we've developed, our training, and our processes. They use all of that. And we we basically are sort of in this consultative relationship where when they have questions about how to scale growth and what to do next. You know, they'll come to us and they'll ask. So we've got them. That's an affiliate. We're not responsible for them legally or fiscally. And then also in Ohio, there's a group over there that, that Matt's working with Shenanigan cycling, and they just started following our, our program training format this year. So there's 600, I'm going to say 675 youth in those programs, and then I'm ballparking this number because I don't have it in front of me, but about 335 volunteers, okay? Out of that 675 youth number, 30 of them are on the race teams. 30 out of 675, or I'll say 98% of my complaints and requests for more, 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 more from the org comes from the race side. So, I mean, think about that. It's really crazy how lopsided it is. When you consider we're close to 700 kids in three states, sometimes the hardest piece to run is the race team. That It's telling. I'm sorry, but it's telling.
1: I'm amazed you still keep with the race team. Is it it a a pride thing for you to still have that attached, or is it just? No,
2: it's 100% about the kids, because I do have this belief that one of the struggles we have, in our country at least, the reason that we've become so polarized is because people are becoming entrenched in their ideas to the point that they can't imagine another possible reality so i'll just this this is a dumb example the sky is blue right that's what we've been taught that's what we've been told you may have a group out there like i can't imagine a sky that isn't blue i just i can't fathom it when you get to that point if somebody comes in and says well I'm looking up it's like well no that's green right and then you become entrenched. It's like, no, it's, it's fucking blue. Like, I've been told this for 48 years. I, I don't know what you're looking at. Maybe that person was just brought up to believe it was green. And, and really, the only difference then is we're looking at the same sky, but we've been taught two different things about the sky. I think we have to get better at questioning our own blind spots. So I'm constantly looking and saying, okay, I'm an advocate for adventure. I'm an advocate for a method of youth development that I believe is far more effective and builds community more effectively than traditional sports do. But I have to be willing to be my own critic and ask what if I'm wrong and, and try to craft the counter argument to my to my belief. So I think it just, for me, it helps keep me centered and it helps me understand, like, we do need to remember, whether it's 30 kids or 300, there are kids who they need, their wiring requires that competitive tension. That's what's going to help them develop. And they deserve that as much as the other kids do, which, again, I think is the majority of kids don't need that, at least not as quickly as we try to push it on them. Yeah. So that's my thought on that.
1: What's what's the what's the, know, what's the format for the adventure team with their expeditions? Yeah,
2: so the quick overview on the adventure team is or adventure bike club is we've got kids age five to seventeen. It's co-ed, okay. That, that's another hot point or hot button for me in sport. I, I here I was at a Nike race last weekend. I think the intention of the grit ride is positive. Grit is the is the uh, program focused on young girls, trying to increase the number of girls in cycling. So I think the intention is is great. Our girls on our team won't participate in the grit ride. And I believe it's because they've come from a program where we're not doing what most of society does to kids and separating them. We're we're, We're bringing them together and saying, we have to show them how to collaborate, work together, behave together, act around each other. And the only reason to do that is to bring them together. Now, I'll be the first to say, you know, if it's a football team, yes, girls and boys, it's a little bit harder to put them in the same team because you know, somebody's gonna get hurt, just the physicality, the size of the of the kids and stuff, the power we're talking about. But wherever we can, we should always be creating programs that are co-ed and based. Based on behavior and character development ethics first. What what I see with a lot of initiatives trying to increase women in sports or girls in sport is that it almost it, it almost starts to feel like a spectacle. And by trying to grow it and be and make it part of the whole, they're doing it by by pulling it out and throwing it out separately, and treating it as, as its own thing. But if it's constantly pulled out and treated as its own thing, then you're actually not together. I, I just and and again, you know. I can see there's, I'm sure there's multiple viewpoints on this and arguments, but I can tell you that for 10 years, we've never treated anybody. We don't deal with labels. We don't deal with categories. It's sign up for adventure bike club and boys and girls will ride together. Our number, our percentage of female participation for coaches and for athletes or kids is 45% across the board. There are not many we'll say, sport-centric organizations in the country that can say that. 45%, nearly 50, we're, we're near, nearly 50-50. And I think you need to get there because I think a healthy community is based upon the idea that you have men and women, first of all, working together and mentoring together and showing a shared uh, responsibility to lead where you know men defer to women, women defer to men, We're not getting caught up in all these arguments about who's in control because it's not a thing. Everybody's working together. Control is, control is not something that they have to battle for. And then by having men and women work together and model their appropriate behavior and communicate effectively and respectfully, they are then modeling the behavior that we are desiring from kids. Now, if I put the kids, if I put 700 kids out with let's say 80% guys, 20% women and all these guys are cat 1 racers this program is totally different right it would be it would be a highly competitive cutthroat like mike was saying you know people you'd you'd see people literally trying to undermine others
0: for for the win it's an inevitable thing when you start getting very competitive and you start getting a competitive mindset once you change the mindset then Other things change along the way. Here's, here's
2: the thing with competition and I'm not anti-competition because I'm highly competitive. (laughs) That's kind of the, the irony here. However, I think races and competition, I think what they do is they limit success. If your podium is only three spots and you have 300 people success is seen as being on one of the three steps. You, that's a very small number of people that are going to be successful in air quotes. Whereas if you look at our events where we really don't do podiums, we're we're getting further and further away from it. Like this year, I mean, we'll, we'll have some podium shots, but it's actually only because at Margie, we have to do NUE categories. So there really are not, we have open cat, open class, open male, open female. There's no kids categories. Like the kids who sign up, they go in the male category or they go in the women's. They're competing head to head with the adults. They're right in the fray with everybody. And the beauty of it is because we're not putting this emphasis on the podium and we're sort of re- rewiring the experience and what we deem as being success or successful or what a, a person can have as successes, everybody can go to that event with their own personal goals and 10 people could share the same space and have some level of success toward what they went there to achieve. Like we do not have to limit success.
0: So I first noticed that when Crusher, I was watching. Shoot, first year I did the Crusher, Did the, when I was doing the 225, came rolling up on, on a group, of, a group of, your, uh, of the adventure team. I couldn't even tell you the ages and they're out doing the 40 and they're just, I'd, I'd like to say maybe 10, 13 area, 10, 13 years old. Yep. And were, were they out trying to get a PR? I I I don't I couldn't tell you that part, but I know the one thing they they were excited about trying to be able to finish this, be able to finish it within, within the cutoff. And that was, that was their goal. This a brief chat I had as I was passing by because, well, I forget how many hours we had to get for the 225 and I was, I was close, but yeah, that that was the big thing. And then, over the next few years, watching even with the Margie watching some of the kids go out and, and going out and doing that, their big their big goal was being able to finish it. And then if they did the year before, finish it with a better time. It wasn't so much. Well, I got fifth or sixth. He's like, oh, I got I got I I, I lost thirty minutes this year, I'm thirty minutes faster this year, or or I finally moved up and I did the hundred. I saw a few I saw a few kids few kids on that one.
2: Yeah, the Margie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we had
0: the pressure as well. I saw saw a few kids, you know, get all excited that they finished the the hundred.
2: Yep. Well, we had one. Ian Kangas did the two twenty five last year. Woo. Yeah, he's 15,
0: 16. I yeah. mean, that, that was and that was their podium was just finishing it. it. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't even a place. It was just that I finished it, which yeah. which is yeah. what we all forget over the period of time is like you go out and try and do something very hard, and you're like, well, I only got you know, hundred fifty fourth out of you know, 300 people is like, well, but you finish an event that's extremely difficult.
2: The thing with like the Crusher or Margie, or maybe not as much polar Polaroid, definitely the two big ones, Crusher and Margie, is that they are going to force you, like if you're doing the 225, first of all, you're going to be riding through the night. Even if you're one of the fastest people doing it, you're riding through the night. So it forces you to learn new equipment, do ride through the night. You have to, equipment plan and resupply plan and be prepared to filter your own water like you have to be prepared and more well-rounded to take care of yourself than any traditional event is ever going to teach you to be right and i'm talking like sprint type you know our 90 minute two hour races nothing wrong with those i like them but these events are designed to be a little bit different and for ian i mean if you think about it for these kids who are doing the crusher whether it's the 40 the 100 or the 225 the skills that they're developing to do those events are going to serve them for the rest of their life the plastic fucking trophy you get for little league baseball right that you put on the shelf at the end of the season i don't think it's nearly as impactful and i'm not trying to beg on baseball i played baseball growing up and i love it i played it up until legion baseball but I just, I know the stuff. We just took a group of kids out two, I think it was two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, 906 kids, as you noted, Mike. We had, I'm going to say six coaches, and the majority of the coaches, or, or at least half the coaches, were women. And we had 12, 16, with 16 or 18 kids from age 11. My son was the youngest. So from 11 to 17, went out and did the 40 mile crusher, which is actually 60. and we were out there for nine hours and they had a tremendous day and everybody by the end of it suffered at a little different level, you know, but everybody smiled for nine hours and 60 miles and just thought it was the greatest thing ever. And in, as you know, Mike, I mean, the Crusher's designed not to be great. <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's fun, but it's, it's not fun. Right. It's fun to talk about later while you're doing it at times. It's like, this sucks.
0: <laughs> Why <laughs> did I pay to do this? Well, even, even with the 40 mile, like, not knowing not, like I saw the course, I didn't get a chance. I have, didn't have an opportunity this year to be able to go up and do it, but just take a look at the course. It's like, even the 40 mile is, is not fun. It's like, I'll take a look at what the profile was. It's, it's just not fun. But you're right. It's the stories <laughs> afterward, it's like, oh, well, there's this one water crossing. I mean, shoot, yellow dog, yellow dog, the um, one two years ago, even last year. I mean, you had four different water levels you had to go through, or yeah. the here river again. You had a, you know, what, what were you going to get? Were you going to get a sandbar? Were you going to get, you know, mm-hmm. shoulder deep water? Or, no, no one, no one is excited about those things. But again, it's you get excited about talking about. Oh, yeah, I was, I was. I was knee deep in, in the yellow dog crossing through and then had to go through mosquito gulch with, with no bug spray because yeah.
2: I think it helps kids and adults, anybody who does, anybody who participates in the events. I think that the experiences are placing individuals in moments of varying degrees of fear and sense of what would the word be? Or sense of it not, they have the sense that what they're doing is not safe. You know, frankly, some of it is not entirely safe. We've been telling kids in the bike program since we started that mountain biking is inherently dangerous. There's no way for us to ensure you that you're not going to get hurt. And the same holds true for the events. But, you know, when you take a group of kids like uh, we did a couple weeks ago and you go through, so I don't know if, I don't know if this, I don't think this crossing, well, it wasn't in 2020, the Dead River crossing this year, the water's really high. And it's probably on me. I'm going to say I'm six two. that water right now is probably mid thigh. And it's at the spot where you have to cross. It's moving like I've,
0: yeah, I've seen a couple of videos on that one. Yeah.
2: Yeah. We put in the crusher group. You know, if you if you go across it and put your bike in the water, the the, the current is so strong right now that bikes come. It's going to push the bike against you and you might end up going down the drink. So for kids to get to that river and they see that. And now they've got this moment of, oh my God, how am I gonna get across that? Right, there's fear, there's uncertainty, there's problem solving, there's gotta be teamwork. And at some point, you just have to go for it. You can't turn back, you're forced forward. To see what that does is they overcome those moments time after time after time and the confidence that it builds in them, it's contagious. I mean, it's what keeps me doing this. It's what will keep me doing it to some degree, you know, probably for the rest of my life is those moments where, you know, that kid just leveled up. It's very subtle. It, It, you know, it may not pay dividends for the kid until six months, one year, two years later, but you know that experience, you just, you can feel that something's shifted. And that's what that's what I mean. That's what we're here for, right? So I can about. go.
0: I can give you an easier one. I remember you had you uh, you you'd just got back in. I think it was last year. You guys just got fully back to swing for Avenger team at a practice. A kid was having a hard time with an obstacle. kept falling down. kept falling down. Or you, you just the story that you you had put up was also finally came over and you asked him what was going on and you know what's the problem. And the kid got all upset because he couldn't couldn't do the obstacles. He's like, I'm going to practice obstacles. It's, it's very hard. You know, can't do it. He's like, so, so I, I'm, I'm thinking my quitting. He's like, well, right, right now we're going to practice getting up. Like, exactly. It's all we're practicing, just getting up.
2: Yeah. Getting up and moving forward. I think that was a will. I think that's, I think that's who that story was. The kids, I mean, what's interesting with the program is that we've become well enough established now and we're, we're extremely consistent with our cultural standards and behavior is the behavior ex- expectation is consistent across the organization for coaches, for staff, for kids, for parents. Everybody knows there is a certain bar to hit. And what it's kind of turned into for the kids is, you know, they they know we're going to go out and do stuff that's going to push them outside their comfort zone. They know at some point during their ride, they're going to be on a trail that isn't actually a trail, and they're going to be pushing their bike through ferns, or they're going to be challenged to see how many times it can ride up Kirby's Hill. And it actually is starting to help develop, even in the kids that are five, this resilient attitude of, okay, a kid is sending it down a gravel Hill. He's six. He's out of control, having the time of his life. And he just eats it, just eats it. His first reaction in our, in our program is the pop up, and be like, I'm good, I'm good, and get on his bike and keep going. Whereas I, I've used this, I've used this story before, and I'll probably continue to always use it. A similar scenario where I think that our, as adults, energy and emotion, guides kids. We actually guide kids down the path of losing their shit, or we we can guide kids down the path of being more resilient, and and looking at obstacles and things that happen not as the end of the world but as just another challenge in the day just something else another obstacle to overcome another chance to get up i can't remember the kid's name but he was ripping down the gravel hill he crashed he was in the weeds i rolled up to him i was looking at him laying in the dirt in the weeds wasn't he wasn't doing much he looked up at me i could see fear in his eyes i knew he was scared he wasn't crying but I knew we were at that point where it was going to go, it could go any direction, right? So I'm looking at him. I don't see blood. I don't see arms or legs pointing in directions that they, you know, shouldn't be pointing. So I'm like, all right, I think this kid's good. So I looked at him and I said, you all right? And, he's, and, he, and he didn't answer his, I mean, he's just looking at me. And I was like, well, you're going to get up? And when I said that, it was like, it was like getting up wasn't an option on the card until I offered it. <laughs> Right. Because then all of a sudden he was like, it was like, oh, yeah, I think I'm going to. And he got up and he looked at himself and he's like, I'm okay. And he got on his bike and he rode away. If I had drove, if I had ridden up, if I had been, let's say I wasn't my kid, let's say it was my kid and I and I see my boy crash like that. This is why we don't let parents coach their kids, by the way. A hundred percent universal rule in all of our programs is you can coach, but you're not coaching your kid. But if I had been coaching my kid in that moment, the odds are very high. I am going to come up and overcompensate in my energy and my emotion, whether it's really serious or not, is going to make it seem disastrous to that kid. And he's going to cry and it's going to become potentially traumatic.
0: Man, he, my parents are not like that. <laughs> I mean, I have stories where my mom would take me into my dad's office after I got myself cut and like, cause your kid fix them. But beside the point, it just, it's the the reaction thing. Yeah, good. I I can seeing I can I've seen that firsthand at races where the parent will overreact on something that happened to the kid, and the kid feeds off of that in in some some aspects.
2: Hundred percent. I mean, you can see you see it right now. Social media is probably the best and worst example of how you can amplify good and bad behavior. You know, I think that. Not that our community or the network that we're creating is perfect. It's not. There's definitely situations where we have to get involved and talk to somebody and be like, hey, that doesn't fly, you know, that type of behavior or some sort of interaction. But largely speaking, the etiquette, the conduct, the collaborations, the interactions are positive, and everybody's looking to build each other up and share experience and share wisdom and share stories, and there's not this huge you know cutthroat competition going on that's the positive side the negative side is the just the way that they'll take uh topics that are highly emotional volatile and then social media just fucking ramps up the two extreme edges of whatever that topic is and it's off to the races and off the rails and and the a pro- productive conversation is not going to come out of it
1: never
0: does
2: nope and it's, it's just an amplification of emotion.
1: What I've heard of 906 and what I've just literally heard about 906, I, I don't think I need to ask any questions. I'm thoroughly just impressed. So when it comes to people like Matt from Shenanigans wanting to do what you do, is there a structural program that you guys have lined out of how you put it together?
2: So good question if somebody there's there's two paths if if a community is wants to come in and become part of the 906 adventure team and we're going to assume legal and fiscal responsibility for them then there is a very clearly defined path of how we do things when we do things why we do it the way we do it covid forced us to develop a online training platform because you know you couldn't gather to do training in person. So in that way, that was that was a positive ad- adaptation. So now we have this online training resource that we can use locally and for our remote locations and then for folks like Matt and then the, the team in Lansing, the affiliates. So we have that resource. We do all of our own background checks on people in-house and you know, we've we've now re- removed any middlemen and we deal directly with Sterling and our background checks are done nationwide. Yeah. The, the, the operational game plan, everything is laid out all. If you're going to be underneath our nonprofit responsibility, you just got to come in and run it the way we run it. The affiliates, they go through our training they do everything that all of our volunteers do, but then how it actually runs in their community, how closely it is following our model. I, I, from everything I've seen, Matt is following it pretty darn close to a T or when he's, deviated from it I'll get a message from him a few weeks later and say okay now I understand why you were doing it that other way and we'll probably do it that way in the future you know the thing to keep in mind is I mean we've been doing this 10 years so the beauty of us being able to work with other communities to help them develop their adventure team is they don't need to go through some of the growth stages we did and make the same mistakes that we did <laughs> I mean sometimes you have to make the mistake to learn the hard way But we do offer a faster path if you want to just, if you want to follow our protocol.
0: How much more do you like bikes now?
2: You know, that's an interesting question. Because for me, I mean, I love, I love my bike. But this, I don't know if this will surprise you or not. I could, I could hang up the bike tomorrow and go do something different. As long as I was still working with kids and still doing the same mission. Because to me, it's about the people. It's about the change we're trying to create. It's not about the bike. I could I could do it with a bike, a pair of shoes, a paddle board, a backpack. And I think it's I actually think that it's unhealthy to become too dependent on a object. I look at the bike. I just recently talked about this on a podcast with uh Josh on Trail Effect. They he was talking to somebody and they started harping on, you know, bicycles are just toys. And that actually, to be frank, kind of pissed me off because we're running a youth program where We're trying to do the exact opposite. We're trying to teach kids and and parents of kids. We need we need kids to help. We have to help them understand. This is this can be a toy and it can be fun, but that is not. It should it should not be its primary purpose in a child's life. That bicycle is a freedom machine. We've got a video we did three years ago that literally is titled Freedom Machine, and that bike can be a gateway to a reality and a life that that kid might otherwise not have if they're not taught what the potential and power of that bike is. For me, it's all about what the bike can do and uh, where it can take you. It's not about the bike. The industry, of course, wants you to believe it's all about the bike and you need about 12 of them. You know, we won't even go down that path, but that's just the wrong deal. Like, here's the thing, corporate entities and corporate interests and nonprofit interests they are both businesses. Okay. You can't run a successful nonprofit if you're not going to act like a business. You can't run a successful business if you're not going to run it like a business. The difference becomes the bottom line of a corporation or the bottom line of an LLC or some sort of private company. The bottom line is all about the dollars and the profit. And every decision that that company and the leadership of that company is going to make will always be driven by that bottom line and how much money they're making. And it's going to be a good thing for you if for a while that company and those people in leadership think that somehow helping you is in their best interest because they're going to do everything they can for you because they think that by supporting you, it's driving their bottom line. And as soon as they find something else that's going to drive their bottom line, they're going to leave your ass behind, right? That's just the way it works. Nonprofits, right? A nonprofit business. That bottom line. You know what the bottom line is? It's change. Bottom line is social change, creating change, changing lives. That's what's on the bottom line. You still have to have enough of an economic model to support it. But the bottom line for a nonprofit is we need to be changing people. We need to be making things better for people. So that's my rant about the bicycle becoming the you know, the star of the show. It should never be the bike. It should be the people. It should be humanity. It should be community.
0: I saw that one coming.
2: <laughs> Tee
0: it up. <laughs> I, saw, I saw that one coming. Well, I, I saw that one coming because we, we we discussed that not too long ago. You and I had, had a little yes. back about that in regards to to a person. So
2: Some people would refer to me as being a real pain in the ass. That's okay because I think you can be a pain in the ass and and be doing it in a positive and effective way. You know, more people need to be shown that you don't have to buy into narratives, you don't have to pick sides. Actually, functional, healthy, community-building adults should be more in the middle. And they should be able to see all sides to issues and topics. And they should constantly be working to bring more people to the middle because the greater good needs to be served. You know, the world is not getting bigger like the physical footprint of earth is not getting bigger so we're kind of stuck with each other right we should probably find we need to find more ways to to understand that by poisoning community with obsessive competition finite thinking is it's not good for anybody
1: so last question of the day and I am going to change this to make sure we ask a better question but what currently gets you stoked <laughs> on your program because it's not about the bikes i can't ask bike
2: i know i know it because originally the question was what gets you stoked about bikes nice pivot you adapted Um, i'm learning (laughs) (laughs) that's an easy one it's seeing people come out of experiences that they had on the bike i was talking so amy moss is a board member of ours she's a superstar volunteer not just as a board member but at the races she is a adventure team volunteer she she's been working with kids for three years with us she has she's on record as saying that she thinks she gets more out of bike club and and the training and the experience than the kids do. She went to do the crusher so Mike, I was telling you we did it with the kids a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Well that so that was on a Tuesday that weekend so after that Tuesday on Saturday, there were two moms that were going out to do the crusher moms of kids that were doing the crusher that day. These moms are going out to do it first time they were ever taking it on. Amy was not supposed to go, but then I think Christian, one of our coaches talked to her about going and and riding with us and the kids. And she opted not to, she was, and she, and I'm not saying anything that she didn't say she's making excuses. She said she wasn't ready. She hadn't trained enough, you know, trained in air quotes. So she didn't go with us, but then she saw us go out. She saw all the posting on social media. She saw how well the kids did and she, she was disappointed in herself and she's like, damn it. Why didn't I go? So then she, I guess, got a hold of Laura Lee and Laura. And she ended up going with them, and Mike and Mosquito Gulch. So this year in Mosquito Gulch, instead of going up the gulch to the Yellow Dog, they're coming down the gulch. So oh, down I the still
0: tech- to do that.
2: Yeah, they're they're coming down the technical section. Well, when Amy got into the section of the gulch that is super bouldery, oh, and, and it's raised like trail was five feet off the rock bed. She fell off. She crashed. She went over the five foot drop and she landed on her back. She was not in in good shape. It was not good, but she finished it. She got, somehow she got up, she shook it off and she rode out, I don't know what it was, 20 miles or something. But seeing her tell the story yesterday in our office about how she went through this whole progression of, you know, making excuses, then being disappointed, then calling herself out, then signing up to go do it with the, the moms, then going out and doing it, crashing, having to overcome that. I mean, she's all bruised up all over the place. She she, looked, she looks like she got in a fight with The Rock. Just seeing now that sense of, just the sense that she has in herself. Like, you know, I, I was capable of this all along. And the only thing that had to change was my attitude about myself. That's what gets me stoked on, you know, trying to get more people into the community.
0: Just for references so you know, the, the, the section, like Todd is underselling that section. <laughs> Because I've been through it, i was been through it, what, three times? No, two times. Because <laughs> for the 225 and then for the 100, you didn't see it in the 40. So it doesn't matter what direction you're going. I think it's on the north side of it. It's basically, what it looks like is a, a riverbed that got washed out and there's no longer a riverbed at all. But what's the remainder is just a boulder field. And we're not talking like, what you're thinking of little boulders. We're talking, there's some boulders that are size of like VW bugs. There's there's a couple that are size of like some compact station wagons and in the, the ledge he's talking about, that was that was a short one. There was a couple of 10 footers. Yeah. And, it, and it's it's not like like, oh, there's a boulder here, and then you go down a little bit, there's a boulder here. You know, it's 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 a minefield go all the way through. And yeah, so like Mike's the expression that no one probably will see other than Todd if he was paying attention was utter shock because I was afraid I was gonna do that, and I knew. If that happens, i have been in her situation. Yeah, you
2: might not be walking out. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a
0: bad spot. You don't
2: I mean, want to fall. A cool, there. It's
0: a cool spot to see if, yeah. like, during the day. Or I wish I had more moonlight when I went through it. It was raining, but it looked like it would be a good spot to be during middle of the night. And it's a cool spot to be during during some nice sun uh, during sun sunny day. But again, it's one of those where riding through. No, but it's a great story to tell that you went through this. Here I thought you were going to talk about the kid at the campground. Which one? I mean, oh, which are you talking about for the, for the uh, mass they start? They got his bike. Yeah. Oh, the, I mean, yeah, that. That yeah. was community behind it, but that was the kid. That was didn't...
2: that was very cool, Alan. Alan did, Alan, did you hear the story about the the kid that we bought a bike for? <sighs> Not at all. Uh, I'll be quick. So we we hosted our first mass start, you know, gather weekend gathering for the Crusher this year in July, first time in two years because of the pandemic. The owners of the campground, they have a young boy, I think he's nine and you know, the, the, campground was taken over by about 350, you know, crushers and their families. And so this, this kid saw this crazy community of crushers come into the campground and take the place over. And I mean, we were up from four, thirty, four o'clock in the morning, Saturday morning until 6 AM Sunday, waiting for people to finish. You know, so he and his family are watching all this happen. And I talked to Ellen on Sunday when we were wrapping up, getting ready to head out just to make sure that, you know, we had cleaned everything up and she was happy with how things had gone. And she shared a story about how her son was so inspired by seeing everything that went on that weekend for the crusher and then realizing that there were kids who were doing it because there were quite, there were a bunch of kids that did the 40 and, you know, he saw the kids finishing. so. He told his mom, he's like, Mom, I think I could do the crusher. I think I could be a crusher too. You know, so he started writing a Christmas list because he doesn't have a bike. So everything on the Christmas list was a bike and a helmet and fancy glasses and a backpack and all this stuff that he saw everybody, you know, using through the weekend. I thought it was a great story. So I came back on Monday in the Crusher private group on Facebook and I just shared the story about Jackson. And, you know, I thanked the community for potentially inspiring this young man to join us next year because we're gonna go back there again. and within 20 minutes, I had been sent a thousand dollars from I don't know 15 people to buy the kid a bike and everything he needs. <laughs> it was nuts. so I brought he he ended up being gone for part of the summer in Cincinnati to go see family but I brought the bike and all the gear and a crusher jersey to him two weeks ago and his mom's been sending me pictures and videos of him riding the bike every day since.
0: Yeah, just just the ambassadorship of, of the kids, of, of the 906 uh, kids out there, just inspiring yeah. someone else to, you can, you can go out and do that.
2: Well, it's, it's, you know, getting people to do things that they didn't think that they could do is actually not as complicated as you might think it is. What you need to do, and this is why I think we've been successful, is you need to be exceptionally good at storytelling. And you and you can't be too proud to tell the stories. And Mike, you've seen all the stories that we tell. Everything we do is all story-based and it's and it's sharing. And then what happens is people are connecting with these stories through social media or other means. And they'll read the stories. And while they're reading the story, they're looking at the person in the picture. And, and they're connecting with the person because they're thinking, well, shit, she looks just like me. I mean, if she can do it, I can do it. Or you know, they might see a guy like a dad who, you know, when you look at him, you'd never think he'd be doing the crusher. He has a couple of kids. He goes out, he does a crusher with his son. And now there's a dad at home who maybe he played ball sports and was athletic in high school and college, but then, you know, family life happened. And, you know, th- this idea that adventure and all of this physical fun training for life type stuff ends you know there's this this narrative that you you got to go do the you got to go be a dad you know you don't have time to do this stuff but somebody might see you know Brandon Evans who looks just like him but this guy's at home on the couch doing nothing and that guy might be like well shit if if Brandon's doing it why can't I right so it's all about connecting people and stories and experiences and just helping them see like there's people just like you doing this and if they can do it you can too But the first thing you got to do was you got to get up off the couch. And the second thing is you got to start showing up and it, and it isn't, you know, it isn't going to be all roses and rainbows. That's for sure. Especially if you start doing stuff like the crusher and Margie
1: guys, thanks for coming on today. Any last words? I got one thing I want to say. I have a shirt on that says there is no
2: finish line and people sometimes struggle with wrapping their head around. What do you mean? There's no finish line. There's always a finish line. Every race has a finish line. So it isn't literally saying it's not saying there's, there's no finish line obviously at times there is but the phrase there is no finish line i just i want people to understand there's there's two ways to look at it there is no finish line in the context that if you are doing something and failing you just have to keep getting up and and trying again it's kind of the growth mindset the power of yet right if you fail one time that's not the end unless you quit if you get back up and you go again you know you're just you're one step closer to being able to do it so that's in that context that's what i'm talking about there is no finish line like okay you fail you you quit that race big deal it's it's not like you're not going to be determined by that moment for the rest of your life unless you allow that to happen if, if you quit at this moment then yeah that's the finish line and you know who knows where it goes from here but you you got to stop worrying about finish lines and you just in in failing and just get up and keep keep after it and then the other piece on there is no finish line is The other way to look at it is let's say you go out and you do something really hard and you finish it. I hear people say, well, I checked that off my box. I don't need to ever do anything. Something like that. Again, that is also incorrect. You know what? You don't need to do crusher every year. You don't need to do Margie every year. Um, You don't need to do any, any event we do every year, but you do need to do something hard every year. You need to do something at least once every year that pushes you outside of your Comfort zone because that's the only way you keep moving forward. That's the other way that I use there is no finish line is just that, hey, just because you did it once, like I actually told Tori this the other day because he he finished the Crusher EX225, I think, last year or the year before. And what I told him was because he hadn't done it yet this year, I said, You've finished it in the past. That made you a finisher of the crusher for that year. You need to earn it again this year to say you're a finisher and that's definitely my mentality. You can't live on your laurels. You can't live on something you did 5 years ago. That's a losing that's that's an ingredient uh, label for losing. If you look at losing and it had an ingredient label, it would be the first ingredient would be complacency. That's complacency. So, there is no finish line. Just because you get there once doesn't mean that that you have nothing left to prove. You got to keep getting back after it. I'll shut up now. Mike, you got you're gonna leave drop any wisdom on us here at the end, bud?
0: How can I drop wisdom after that? No,
2: I just mean, make something. I the up. world's
0: the world's never safe and you know, there no finish line. I mean shoot. Can you I got nothing after that one?
2: Can you see what's on the wall behind
0: me, Alan? Yeah, because yeah. I got it yeah. sitting up over on my uh, I got oh, the postcard go. sitting on my fridge.
2: Yeah, there you go. Yeah. This is great, guys. It was great, Mike. Great seeing you,
1: Alan. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Stoked On Spokes podcast. If you enjoyed it, please like, subscribe, rate us, and tell your friends about it. Check out our Patreon page for additional bonus content. And follow our Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date on all the things we are working on. Until next time, just keep rolling.